Hi, Hi everyone. everyone. I'm John. And I'm Georgia. And we're here inside your ears to talk about the mac and cheese of movies. This, this is, is Comfort, Comfort Films. Films. Hi everyone and welcome to episode 24 of Comfort Films. 24 and there's so much more. <laughs> That's right? true. That's, That's what true. Neil Young taught me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Neil Young. Thank you, Neil Young, for that information. <clears throat> So this week we're getting super classy and doing a Shakespeare play. Pinkies up. No, not at all. I mean, that's the best part about it. I was like, let me make this, you know, fake statement to start with. Because Shakespeare is like unclassy and that's what I love about it. I mean, people treat it like it's some huge institution, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's always a big deal. Like, and it's like, you know, the British accent and all this kind of stuff. And it's like all the costumes and you have to be rich or something. But the the fact is, it's like 85% pee-pee jokes, you know? <laughs> and I love that. I think it's great. I mean, Much Ado About Nothing, which is what we're talking about today by Kenneth Branagh, mm-hmm. is a pee-pee joke yeah. itself. Uh, I mean, so Elizabethan slang for a penis was thing. Oh, yeah? So, imaginatively, you know, a vagina was nothing, no thing. Oh. So, this play is literally much ado about vagina. That's really good. (laughs) I mean, I think if that was the actual title, I think people would be lining up for this. Yeah. You know? They would want to know, what is this play about? Truth and advertising. Right? Because, like, think about it. We had Sausage Party, right? (laughs) You know? And that was was a funny movie, but it's like, Sausage Party. You know? It's like... Like, you knew what you were getting when you bought the ticket. Right. These provocative titles are what really pull people into the theater sometimes. Well, that worked for Shakespeare. Yeah, because everybody knew the joke back then. It's like, the joke is there, but we just don't get it because we're not in touch with the language enough. Exactly. Wow. That's really crazy, man. I mean, how many people do you think know this now? I don't know. I'm pretty sure I learned it from my college professor. Okay. And did they lay it out just the way you did? Yes. Oh, yeah? Yeah. It's pretty good. That's why we say Shakespeare, pee-pee jokes. What if it was called, like, Much Ado About Wieners? Well, you know, it's not, though. It's not Much Ado About Wieners. No, it's like it's like Much Ado About Not Wieners. Exactly. About the unwienered. I think it's great that right off the bat, you're right in line with what Kenneth Branagh said. Well, it's funny because I, I love Kenneth Branagh generally. So I quite like, you know, what he does. I may not always agree with it necessarily but i generally like his take i like how creative he is i like what he does with shakespeare Mm -hmm. and i love that he's keeping it alive you know as a populist entertainment because that's what it is but the funny thing is i really hadn't watched any interviews with him or anything like that so you know when i was like just bloviating on my shakespeare opinions which i probably do like every single day and that's you know what john's lot in life is to put up with uh, hey you're very intelligent 
I never shut up. I mean, I will go on and on about a bag of corn chips that was really tasty. I'll say, like, do you remember the last time we had corn chips that were this good? They're so crunchy, and they go perfect on chili, or you can have them separately, or we could take a little snack bag somewhere. Did you know the calories on these? Let's talk about the nutrition information. That's what you live with. So having yes, no, I know, but... a smart observation on Shakespeare, a take on Shakespeare that is unique, and it's very... I don't know, what do I want to say? Intelligent? Smart? I mean, you you give a lot of information. Well, I mean, I've spent many, many years studying it. And I guess the reason that I kind of have an irreverence when it comes to Shakespeare is because I didn't necessarily get introduced to it the same way that everybody else does. And I think that in the American educational system, I'm not, I can't speak for other countries, but particularly in the U.S., I think that it is, Shakespeare is held up as some kind of institution and it's introduced to you when you're in high school, like ninth grade or something, like we're going to read Romeo and Juliet. And it's yeah. like so stuffy when in reality, Shakespeare is kind of like the hot TV show that we're watching now. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like there's a reason that people say succession is Shakespearean. And it's not because it's super classy, okay? Yes, there's rich people in it. Okay, cool. There's rich people in King Lear. There's rich people in Hamlet. There's rich people in Macbeth. It's about royalty. And Succession is kind of about this royalty of America, right? Mm -hmm. But it's also trashy. And that's great. You know, we love that. Oh, As absolutely. A, we always have. And I always think that, like, the more things change, the more they stay the same. People today are interested in watching the same thing that people were, like, 400 years ago, over 400 years ago, which is, you know, a drama, comedy, laughing at fart jokes. <laughs> You know, like all of these kind of things are things that people find funny. And, and we're still watching revenge stories. Yeah. We're still watching romances. Yeah. And when you see all of these mob stories that we watch again and again, all of these crime tales, it always makes me think about Macbeth. And it does. It does. And, you know, all these dramas about euphoria, mm -hmm. Romeo and Juliet. Okay. It's about like these, you know, high school age kids. Wow. Doing all kind of stuff that they shouldn't be doing because they're like in that, you know, no man's land of, you know, being kids or being adults. Yeah. Right. So, you know, we have all these classic stories and that's the deal with Shakespeare. Like he wasn't telling anything completely original most of the time. He was retelling old stories in a new way. So that's why I consider him like, you know, TV because a lot of TV shows are kind of rehashing the same stories that we've always heard. Yeah. But they're doing it in a different way, a fresh way, inventing a new character, saying something in a special way. And that's what Shakespeare did. And I freaking love it. I firmly believe, and I say this to everyone, that if Shakespeare were alive today, he would be like a TV writer. Okay? Because he's writing entertainment for the masses. The great thing about theater in the Elizabethan era was that it was for everybody. There was the groundlings on the floor who were like, you know, working class people who mm -hmm. were just coming to watch something, have a beer, do whatever, 
laugh at the bit with the dog. <laughs> what you know, and then if you're a rich person and you wanted to be seen, you would pay for the you know cushion seats up top. Um, but really, everybody was there to see the play, and everybody could enjoy it. It was like the great equalizer in a time where there weren't many other opportunities for rich people and working class people to be rubbing elbows. Mm. So, you know, this is what I love about Shakespeare. It's for everyone, and it always should be for everyone. It should not be treated like some intangible institution. I keep coming back to that word, but that's what I think about it as. People treat it like some grand old thing. When really it speaks to now, it can speak to people who are young, old, rich, poor, anyone. And you don't even have to have that great of an education to understand it. I think people tend to try to make it more complicated. But the fact is, Shakespeare's originality is not in the plots, but in the language. And that's where, you know, that's where something like this Much Ado, uh, it really excels because it's using the original language, Mm -hmm. but it brings it to life. And, you know, my experience with Shakespeare was I was growing up, I was like, you know, a well-read kid and (laughs) I still do stuff like this, but I was probably in like eighth grade and I wanted to read something and I was like, well you know, I hear Shakespeare's good and I haven't read Shakespeare. Uh, That seems like something I should do. Mm -hmm. Um, I currently have a list of like 20 classic books that I've never read. I'm always like, oh, I should read these. And, you know, I was doing that as early as age 14. Like, oh, there's things I have to do here. They are, you know, if I'm going to be a well-read person, I need to read Shakespeare. So I went to the bookstore and I was browsing about and... I was looking at all the Shakespeare stuff and I'd heard of Hamlet and I'd heard of all these things. But then I came upon a book that was just said four comedies. And I'm like, you know what? I like comedies. I like to laugh. I should try this book. Sure. I knew nothing about it. Um, It had Midsummer Night's Dream Mm. as the second of four of the plays. And I knew about that from Dead Poets Society. Yeah. So I'm pretty sure that's probably what put it over the edge. I'm like, oh, this is the one with Puck, like in that movie. So I went ahead and got it. So it had Taming the Shrew. Um, it had Midsummer Night's Dream. I don't know what the third play was. I want to say All's Well. I don't think I read it at the time. It's pretty challenging. I have still not read that. That It's very challenging. And Winter's Tale, which I don't think I read at the time either, but it later became like pretty instrumental for me that play. Um, It might have been Twelfth Night was the third play, which is really my favorite battling it out with Much Ado for number one. Um, I think Twelfth Night edges it out just a little bit, but only because I have a particular movie version of that that I really love. But Much Ado is also fantastic. But I'm I'm a kind of a front cover to back cover person. So I ended up reading Tammy the Shrew as my first Shakespeare play. Yeah. Um, and that is probably why I never treated it as an institution because Taming the Shrew is like, you know, more than half sex jokes. Mm-hmm. And even at like age 14, I was like, oh boy, this is sex jokes. <laughs> you can't miss it. I mean, Petruchio is like talking about having his tongue in Kate's tail. Yeah. You know, I'm like, oh, well, that's hard to miss. <laughs> So I got it immediately. I'm like, this isn't like high class. 
This is just regular stuff. It's funny. It's great. And I really enjoyed it. It was a great story. And I loved the language. I loved the play of it. I loved how quick it was. Because that play in particular is very quick. Sure. And I'm pretty sure I went on to read Midsummer, And I was just like, I'm in love. Shakespeare's my man. This is great. I love it. And so, you know, the next year when we read Romeo and Juliet, I think I had already read it on my own at that point. Um, so for me, I was just psyched. I was like, this is what I want to study. And that's what I did study. I, I went on, you know, to college and ended up focusing on a Shakespeare. I had some particularly fantastic teachers. Um, the first was John Ford in college. Well, actually, the first was Christy Hager, who was my high school sh teacher for English. And I studied a couple of Shakespeare plays with her, and it was super fun. And I did a research paper just about Shakespeare's life with her, which was great. And then in my undergrad, I worked with John Ford, who was an amazing Shakespeare professor. The only person besides me who was so excited about Shakespeare that like he literally would talk about like nothing else um and we became friends and just you know watched a lot of plays together and just had the best time um fantastic fantastic person and he actually is the one who got me introduced to the third huge Shakespeare teacher in my life which was um, Virginia Mason Vaughn who taught at Clark University and I ended up becoming her teaching assistant and, you know, she helped me write my thesis and she's genius and enthusiastic and so wonderful when it comes to Shakespeare. I mean, I would recommend you read literally anything she's ever written about it and just feel how excited you will be about Shakespeare um, along with her. So I had a great experience where I was excited and I met a lot of other people who were excited and I've never not felt excited about Shakespeare. So that's my story. How about you? My first exposure to Shakespeare was in high school with a class reading of Romeo and Juliet. So no one got up, you know, in front of the class we all were in our seats, and we read the play. We read the different parts aloud, and the parts would change daily that people would get to read. And what I liked about it was I didn't have anything to look at. So I was focused on the sound and the rhythm of the language. And when people were just saying these words one after another, I could feel the momentum like a locomotive. You know, you could feel that this spark of energy there. And this is with, I'd say most of us in the class, our first time going for it with reading this kind of language. So I was like, wow, I, I can't wait to read a part. You know, I'm like, I can't wait to do something. And so, you know, I would try to like, you know, throw a little pizzazz in there, if you will. And, um, I was like, okay, I, I get it. I, I think I might in some very small way get it. So I, I was I was in on the play. Then we watched the, the film. We watched the uh, Zeffirelli film, and that was also cool. You know, and we then saw that one too when I was in high school. Did the teacher like block? Yes. The, yeah. <laughs> she covered her she put her hand over Romeo's bum <laughs> when he's naked. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean like we've never seen a butt. Everyone has one. Hello. Anyway. So we, we did that. 
So a year later, a different English teacher introduced us to Merchant of Venice. So that was my second time okay. to go in and, you know, feel Shakespeare's language. And again, it was something where we read it from our seats. Very similar situation. You know, I was like, I can feel the energy of this. I have to say, the fact that you got to read it out loud mm -hmm. is great. Because I think it has to be heard. Yes. It's a play and it has to be heard. So you were able to, like, feel that momentum, like you said, of the language, which is driving forward the whole time. Mm-hmm. You know? I think that's great. Well, that, yeah, that was how I was able to find my doorway into understanding and appreciating Shakespeare. Because from the outside, when I looked at the language, I, I didn't find it to be something that I could unlock on my own. Yeah, I mean, it, and I think that that is 100% an important point here. You can't, I mean, okay, I did read Shakespeare in my bedroom, you know, alone. But for me, when I'm reading, I tend to be turning things into a movie in my head anyway. Sure, I do that too. And with this, it it was, there's so much energy in yeah. Taming of the Shrew that I really could feel it like coming to life. And I, I ended up kind of reading it out loud to myself in a certain way. But I think when you read Shakespeare out loud, and even if, you know, you just see a performance of it. Mm -hmm. It's a totally different situation than if you're just sitting and reading it. And even though, again, that's what I did, I don't necessarily think that would be the best choice for everyone. I think, really, the best choice for a student in high school who's just learning about Shakespeare is to hear it or to see it. But And, and, and Shakespeare's day, they would say they were going to hear a play. Yeah. They didn't say they were going to see a play. It was about the auditory experience. It was about hearing. So that's why the language is so important, and it's like musical. Yeah, I, I fully agree with that. I fully agree with that, that it's musical. Well, for me, the rest of my high school years, I was actually exposed to Romeo and Juliet two other times. So the first time I ever worked for a theater, I worked concessions. And I worked concessions while they were doing a show of Romeo and Juliet. So I saw, I don't know, 30 performances wow. of Romeo and Juliet. So I got to see it now after I kind of understood the language a little bit. I got to see it in motion. And I got to see the actors and the way that they played it. And where they put it on was Bancroft Tower in Worcester and Worcester, Massachusetts. And this is just this big tower and it had a fountain in front of it. And that's what they used. They just used what was actually there as the set, cool. which was brilliant. So the balcony scene was in a balcony in this tower. And I was just like, wow. <laughs> you know, the Mercutio part was the one that I, I absolutely wanted. Totally can see that. Oh yeah, because I was like, this guy's funny. He gets a sword fight. And the best thing is the actor that I saw when I was in high school, you know, he dies before intermission <laughs> every night. This actor, his name was Vinny. I cannot remember his last name. But every night, Vinny would leave at intermission, go out to eat at a sit-down restaurant <laughs> for the second half, 
And every night, make it back just in time for the curtain call. So even a further bonus to playing Mercutio. <laughs> yeah, I was like, this guy rules. And so I, I, I got to absorb that. And I got to watch these people play the play. And then I also had an experience where I was able to be in a production that was a college level when I was in high school. And this was after having worked, you know, as the concessions guy. And in this production, <laughs> I, I knew the director and I auditioned and he knew that I really wanted Mercutio. And so after the auditions were done, I go up to him and I'm like, hey, what, what part did you get? And he's like, yeah, um, well, you got Romeo. And I went, oh, <laughs> that's cool. And he's like, no, you got Mercutio. I just wanted to see what you'd say. <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. Yeah. I love it that it was like, you got the lead and you're like, oh, no. Yeah, it's not what I wanted. So, <laughs> Well, you are like such a Mercutio guy. I would have loved to see you play Mercutio because, you know, you have that energy and that speed and wit. And, and Mercutio is so smart. Yeah. I, I just really love that role. That, that's the, that's the scene-stealing role for me. Because I'm not actually a huge fan of Romeo and Juliet. Um, it feels a little simple to me in some ways. And mm -hmm. I don't necessarily love it. It's kind of played out. Like, I've just seen it too many times, probably. Yeah. But the Mercutio part, I would just watch any day. It's so great. Well, it's... I, I mean, it's a fantastic role. And what made it even more exciting is that people that were in the show had a relationship with Higgins Armory in Worcester, Massachusetts, which had a lot of medieval weapons. Oh, that's awesome. And we were able to practice the sword fight between Mercutio and Tybalt with, you know, with, with rapiers. You know oh, what I wow. mean? So it was like the real deal. And so I was like a high school kid hanging out with college kids. I'm in this show. We're going all around campus with swords. And I mean, it was an amazing fight. Like I got to do one of those deals where they like swung at my feet and I jumped over it. And oh, like that's awesome. the whole nine yards. Now, unfortunately, the production was not able to be mounted. Uh, Romeo got pneumonia and it just, it didn't, it didn't come through, oh. but, um, I did get to work on it. It's an extremely fond memory for me. That's fantastic. And so I, I have that and, uh, yeah, I mean, then in college, I, <laughs> in college, uh, they were mounting a production of Julius Caesar and, they were also auditioning at the same time that they were auditioning for Caesar for this play, Suburbia, by Eric Bogosian. Okay. And Eric Bogosian's basically, th this play, Suburbia, is basically like some, I don't know, like some kind of punk kind of hipsters hanging out, you know, at the 7-Eleven. Okay. And I don't know, at the time, I, I thought that in my mind, I was like some kind of like, you know, James Dean, you know, kind of guy. But, you know, really, I look like the man that's going to fix your computer. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I so where's that role? Exactly. Well, it in the play Suburbia, there is a role for a chubby kind of guy who plays guitar. He's like a rock star or something. And I went in for the audition and they're like, do you play guitar? And I'm like, no. 
<laughs> you know, and then like I did like this hardcore monologue about like fighting. And, oh my god! Yeah. It, anyway, so <laughs> it's really funny because I know what you looked like then, and like you look tougher now. Yeah. Even than, yeah. and you don't look tough. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. I fully accept it. So you're like a bear, but you're like the kind of bear that you know just you're like the Lake Tahoe bear, <laughs> Hank the Tank. Who, like goes around and steals food from people's house yeah yeah that's more like me from people's houses excuse me rather than like the fierce murder bear that's you know? not me no no uh, I... it's really good though that you were like i'm gonna be tough yeah i had this this problem for a while <laughs> anyway so i went back to the guy that already auditioned for caesar and he was kind of like why didn't you you know audition to begin with but he had uh, some smaller parts that I need filled. And so I was Sinna the Senator, um, you know, and it, it was a good experience. Closer to your IT guy. Yeah, like that's, you know what I mean? It was more... like the IT guy of ancient Rome. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's the vibe. You know what I mean? That's, <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm going to horribly paraphrase Julius Caesar for a moment. But when everyone is in this group and they're talking about murdering Caesar... Um, I'm on stage with all these dudes, and again, it's supposed to be hardcore, you know, in an IT kind of way. Yeah, you yeah. know what I mean? Like, yeah. the OS is down, you know what yes. I mean? <laughs> we got a system changeover. So, you know, we're, we're out there, and um, <laughs> people just fell apart. They didn't know what to say. They forgot their lines, and nobody knew where we were in the script. You could tell by the vibe. And I had, like, the last line in the scene <laughs> that was something like, Eleven uh, B, the utmost, then something like that. So it's basically, you know, five, six. I don't remember how many dudes are just standing out there. Okay, that the scene starts. It's a dead halt for like ten seconds with everybody looking at each other, and I'm just like, all right, eleven o'clock. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> You're but, just like, let's just get to it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> then we just left. No discussion. No, I mean, we knew where we were at. So, yeah, I you don't know. You know, Caesar's going down. We don't need to talk about it. <laughs> no. You guys know the play. I mean, we don't We don't need to really The less said, the better. Exactly. It's like Spinal Tap <laughs> when they're talking about the drummer. <laughs> the, le <laughs> the less we talk about it, the better. Yeah. 11 be the utmost. <laughs> Out deuces. Let's you know be I mean? feet. Yeah, let's, let's roll. Let's roll. And, you know, I mean, and then the, the Shakespeare, I didn't have anything really to do with it. Well, I did have some some scene study, you know, when I was at Clark University. And I was fortunate enough that I did get to work with um, Virginia Mason Vaughn on that and Gino DiOrio. They had that Shakespeare page to stage class. Yep, I took that class. Fantastic class where you have, you know an acting teacher and a Shakespeare scholar working hand in hand to give you the best information. It was a wonderful class. I loved it. it. Honestly, was probably in the top like three or four things of when I studied Shakespeare that influenced me the most um, with my way of reading Shakespeare. Um, the, the first would have been watching the series playing Shakespeare with John Barton and the RSC people. Mm, yeah. Um, if you want to learn about Shakespeare and you don't have time to take classes or read a bunch of study guides or anything like that, first of all, just read the plays. But if you feel like you need help unlocking them, 
or if you're an actor and you need to know how to do Shakespeare, yeah. there's nothing you can do that's better for yourself than to watch that series. Because you're going to be watching John Barton, who is a genius director in the Royal Shakespeare Company, and all these actors who you now know as, like, you know, the greats, like Ian McKellen, Patrick Stewart, David Suchet, yep. when they were, like, in their 20s, 30s or something, like, doing Shakespeare. Um, and just, John Barton will take out a lesson and, like, show it to you in such a way that you can't help but, like, unlock a little bit more. And when I was in Page to Stage with Gino and Ginger... It was more like I was in playing Shakespeare because I had never actually done any Shakespeare acting. Like yeah. for you, it seems like you did a lot of it, which is amazing because you were more on the theater side. I really didn't have a lot of theater experience um, because none of my schools had that. Um, and, you know, we didn't really have like some robust community theater in my town of 600 people, you know, in Mississippi. Yeah. So this was one of my first opportunities to act in it. And um, I ended up doing a scene from Othello um, with this other girl. And we played uh, Desmona and Amelia. And it, I had read Othello probably like four different times for classes at that point. Mm -hmm. But I never really understood the diff like this this whole thing in that play between like the men's world and the women's world mm -hmm. until I did that scene and doing that scene so many times and just digging into it it was so like emotional oh yeah I it thought. was like a completely different way to deal with Shakespeare and I had that going into my thesis like understanding you know what it's like to play it which is even a whole nother like layer it's it's really amazing. And yeah, that class was awesome. It was fantastic. And it's when you talk about peeling back the layers, you realize that there is so much information yeah. in there. You know, you may see something and you see a few words and you think, oh, it's just some words. But then you start to think about the words and then you start to think about the feelings and then you start to feel the feelings then you start to see these images and then you start to think about okay what world are we in when we're saying that who are we around what are we reacting to there are so many ways that you can play the words that that make sense and that's something that i i don't i mean i've had acting classes before where you've had basic dialogue you say, I'm going to the store. And simply by putting different emphasis on one of the words changes the meaning of it. Or just the way that you seem. You know what I mean? It's you you can you can change it. You know, you can make words whatever you want with the emotion behind it. And this language is already so charged yes. that you if you can tap in to like a raw source of emotion with it, you are just going to light people on fire. Yeah, it's, it's, I love what you're saying because that is the truth about Shakespeare and why everyone can continue to study it and talk about it and redo the plays yeah. over and over again for hundreds of years and it never gets old and you never run out of something to say 
because there's a there's a million layers. Yeah. There's a different feeling to it depending on what's even happening in the world at yeah, the time. Absolutely. Because like for example, Macbeth I read like probably six or seven times for classes. But when I read it in grad school and I realized that it's actually very tied in with contemporary events around the gunpowder plot, I just felt like totally galvanized to look at that play again and see it in a completely different light and understand things about it that I'd read over and over and never got. Yeah. And, you know, you can take Shakespeare and set the, you know, you can, you can do a production and set it in a different environment. And that says a different thing. Yeah. You know, you could take a play that took, you know, maybe the setting is ancient Greece and you can move that setting to a different time mm -hmm. and, you know, move it to like World War Two, and it changes what you're saying, yeah. you know, because you can do so much with what's there. And it's not because Shakespeare wasn't saying something. Shakespeare was always saying something. Mm -hmm. But it's just about just the way that it can be adapted and interpreted and the ambiguity that's just this wonderful, wonderful thing. And, you know, I think that brings us around, finally, <laughs> to talking about our movie this week, which is much ado about nothing with kenneth branagh as the director and yeah. star um he plays benedict and his wife at the time was emma thompson and she plays beatrice probably my favorite couple in literature ever they're wonderful that's i, I mean the reason i like this play so much is their interplay when i first saw this movie i was impressed by how accessible it felt and this is with, you know, the, the limited exposure I had at this point. Because this came out in July of 1993. And so I had worked on some things at that point. I had worked on the Romeo and Juliet. I had read that. And so I was excited for more. But there was also part of me that felt like, okay, well, you know, you got the easy one. And you <laughs> had, like, so much exposure to it. Um, but this from the opening you know you see the guys coming back from war on the horses and they just put their arms up in the air like, like we're in the oh. breakfast club <laughs> give yeah. us a Hua! and then you know the title much ado about nothing and i yeah. was like all right well i mean that's the funny thing with this right this this play and immediately sets up you know we have like this countryside, which is peaceful and idyllic. And then here come these dudes rolling in from this war. Yeah. So they're coming here for a relax, you know, to relax and, you know, I guess disengage from like their warlike nature in this kind of peaceful setting. Yeah. Um, and turn their thoughts to love away from fighting and, and the way that Kenneth Branagh does that in this is so hilarious to me. Like, when we watched it this time, I was like, you know, the beginning of this Much Ado is like the end of Caddyshack. And it's just like Rodney Dangerfield being like, hey, everybody, let's go get laid. <laughs> 
And that's pretty much what this feels like. <laughs> like, it's just like Rodney Dangerfield could flash across the screen and be like, hey, everybody, let's go get laid. Because everybody's like stripping their clothes off, going to take baths. It's ridiculous and hilarious. And this is how you just know where you're going with this play because it is a very sexually charged play. It's these people who just really want to get, you know, they want to couple up. Well, yeah. but if I can jump in just for a second. <laughs> yes. Okay. It's, well, because you talk Caddyshack, right? Of course. Of course. You know, I Caddyshack, huge <laughs> fan uh, since birth. And uh, <laughs> even though it came out after I was born, it's from birth, I was a fan. <laughs> um, when they edit this film on television, when they edit Caddyshack, and hey, everybody, let's get laid, or, you know, we're all going to get laid. Yeah. It's, it turns into, hey, everybody, let's all go take a shower. Oh, my God. Well, so, that's even more appropriate. Yeah, or we're all going to take a shower. Yeah, yeah, so, something like that. I mean, yeah, Kenneth Branagh's really thinking about Caddyshack. <laughs> sure. That was it. I mean, he thought about Dangerfield saying, let's take a shower, and he thought, let's enact that. Yeah, he's like, you know, great idea, I'm in. Yeah. And yeah, that's how it starts. Everybody goes, jumps in the tub. There's a lot of butts hanging around. <laughs> Some other things too, boy. This I also like it that that kind of just precludes anyone from showing this at a high school. <laughs> There's going to be a lot more hands covering up, you know, different things <laughs> than just Romeo's butt. But you know, this is the you're immediately introduced to this world that's like sunshine, fruit, veggies. Yeah, everything's fresh. Everyone's happy. There doesn't seem to be much going on wrong here, you know, and all these people are just kind of having fun. Mm -hmm. Their whole life seems built around laughing, you yeah. know, and the funniest, wittiest people are Beatrice and Benedict. And of course, you know, their whole shtick is that they hate each other and just want to like snipe at each other all the time. Yeah. But clearly the only reason that they're doing that is is because they really are interested in each other. Yes. But I happen to think that Beatrice is probably one of the best roles for a female character in Shakespeare because she's smart. She's, you know, matches wits with Benedict. And also she gets a lot of crazy dramatic stuff in the middle. Mm -hmm. And it's just overall a really great role. Both yeah. of those are, you know. So, I I just love it, and I think Emma Thompson is a friggin' genius in this. Absolutely. And Kenneth Branagh is perfect as Benedict. Like, there's so many times in this movie when he just makes me laugh so much, because he's so ridiculous. When he's fooling around with that chair. The chair bit is great. Yeah. Um, that scene in general is hilarious. It's it's when Prince, the uh, Prince of Aragon, which is Don Pedro, in this movie it's played by the amazing Denzel Washington. Yeah, yeah. Who just played Macbeth and was amazing uh, in that as well. He's very good at Shakespeare. I, I, I really wish Denzel Washington would just do all the Shakespeare. I would love it. I would love he's, it. He's so good. Yeah. And this was kind of the first time we'd seen him do that, or that I had anyway. And I was like, wow, are you kidding me? Because the other thing that I liked about this was that I wasn't used to seeing Americans in Shakespeare at that time. 
Um, I think they always were putting English actors in it like they're the only people who can do it. But honestly, that's not the case. Anybody can do it. Well, that was, again, in, in these Kenneth Branagh interviews that I watched leading up to this, that's what he talked about. He said that he wanted it to be something that anyone could do. And he also was very interested in having different acting styles incorporated into this. Because, for instance, if you see Michael Keaton, it's much more of like a, a Three Stooges slapstick Absolutely. throwback. Yeah. You know, the, these very funny old time bits. And, you know, he's using the language and it works. Yes, it's it's really interesting the way that he has that in here. Because you yeah. do have like some very like more naturalistic actors who aren't really used to doing this type of language but mm -hmm. they do a very good job with it and then you have somebody like emma thompson or, or kenneth branagh who's like old hat with it and yeah. also he's kind of peppered in a lot of his people that he works with a lot like richard Breyers and um gerard haran um who he works with in a, in a lot of other movies both of them are in midwinter's tale which is kind of a a great movie that probably like nobody's heard of. <laughs> um, I think John Ford, my professor showed me that one. Um, and it's, it's another Kenneth Branagh movie where actually in this one, it's about a theater troupe with no money who decides to put on Hamlet at Christmas, which is a terrible choice. Cause I mean, that's ridiculous. That. Who's heard of a theater troupe with no money? <laughs> well, that part's not ridiculous. <laughs> But everybody in the movie is like, oh, we should be doing the pantos because everybody does like these Christmas shows in England during the holidays. And in this, like this guy just really decides he just wants to do Hamlet. And people are like, for Christmas? Because it's like a bummer. But he just really wants to do it. And it's such a good, like, oh God, it's such a good movie. We'll definitely do that one someday. Yeah, I'd love it's, to talk It's about another it. Kenneth Branagh amazing uh, a movie that I really, really love. And, and I never heard of it until you told me. Well, so I'm very thankful that you turned me on to it. It's so good. And it's, you know, if you've ever been involved in theater, especially like a small penniless theater, I think there's just so much you can relate to in it. I ran a small penniless <laughs> theater. I can definitely get behind this. I met you in a small penniless theater because that was my first like acting experience, really. So, yes, small penniless theaters for the win. Well, that's actually, I mean, our relationship just seems to be built around this. <laughs> it's true. You know? Well, it's true. I wouldn't have met you. I actually wouldn't have met you if I hadn't been involved in, you know, Shakespeare. Because when I, the reason that I went to grad school at Clark was because I was studying with Virginia Vaughn. And uh, <laughs> I met you because I came to Clark yeah. And I ended up in your theater company and we started doing shows and stuff. And, you know, I, I really wasn't, I'm going back away from Much Ado for a minute. I wasn't really going to talk about authorship necessarily around Shakespeare with the show because I feel like it's almost like there's too much to talk about there. But this is such a huge thing that people always talk about with Shakespeare. It's like, did he write his own plays? And there's so many people who honestly, in my opinion, should know better who really believe that like the Earl of Oxford wrote Shakespeare's plays. 
because there's no way an uneducated guy like Shakespeare could have done it. And I just want to go and shake those people because, (laughs) first of all, it's so elitist and gross. And, like, a lot of the people who believe this are people who've made their whole life off of playing in Shakespeare plays and stuff. And I'm like, how dare you? Like, I take it very personally and I get really mad. Um, And I'm not going to name names, but if you ask me privately, I will tell you who they are because they make me so (laughs) mad. Um, and yeah, cause I know they're listening to my podcast and I don't want to offend them directly. No, I'm we have a lot of heavy people that listen to our podcast. Quite right? a few of these people are dead, but I don't really just, I'm still like mad at them because they could possibly think this because the whole thing for me is I happen to be a poor kid from the sticks who like really loved to read and learn and moved to the big city and started acting, you know, so yeah. I know it can be done. I know that you can be, you know, not an upper crust university educated person and have the talent and knowledge to do something amazing. So, yeah, yeah Shakespeare wrote his plays, losers. I'm with you. Come at me, bro. I'm... I'll come at you because I have... So much evidence. I mean, just Macbeth alone, to me, is evidence. Because the Earl of Oxford died before the gunpowder plot happened. And there is so much in Macbeth that is contemporary allusions to the events that are going on. So, go to hell and die. If you aren't already there, you know who you are. (laughs) And that's all she has to say about that, folks. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, put it on a sandwich and eat it. Yeah. Okay. All right, no. So so I get emotional about Shakespeare. Everybody knows this. Um, that's what it's. That's why it's fun. But, you know, back to Much Ado. Um, the play is already one of my favorites. I actually wrote one of my favorite papers on this play. And I think I saw this movie before I read the play. Oh, wow. So this is like very formative of my opinions about the play, I think. Um, probably why I like hate Robert Sean Leonard. So, no, I'm just kidding. I don't really. But <laughs> the character of Claudio irritates me to my soul. And Robert Sean Leonard is great at the role because he just drives me nuts. Yeah. In it. it. Because he goes, like, from one extreme to another so quickly, and I just want to be like, dude, really? Yeah, he needs to get it together. Like, yes. you know, if somebody came up to me and was talking all this smack about you, I would be like, what? Also, by the way... They just had a war with Don John. Yeah. So Keanu Reeves plays Don John. I don't, he, I I take it he got a lot of flack for this performance, but I actually think he's great. He got a lot of flack for uh, a stage production that he did. um, Of Hamlet. Was it Hamlet? I I believe it was in Toronto, I think. And everybody's like, oh, Ted from Bill and Ted is in Hamlet, and it's like, seriously, people? Yeah, they really threw him under the bus. People were like, 
Uh, yeah, well, um, I, I only want to say good things about it. So, well, uh, he knew his lines. I'm like, all right, whatever. All right, sure. So I don't see you on the screen. Again, this, you know I mean? this goes back to the idea that you have to be like some British person who went to like the best schools or something to play Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. You don't. You can be literally anyone. Some of the most amazing things I've seen happen with Shakespeare is when people take it into prisons and play it with people who are incarcerated, you know, who have no education and and just do amazing things with it. It's phenomenal. Look into that, actually, if you haven't seen anything about it, because it's so amazing. But, you know, why can't Keanu Reeves do Shakespeare? He plays Don John, and Don John is actually a pretty difficult role. Yeah. Honestly, yeah. because he is sour. He's the sour grape in the bowl of sweet grapes in this <laughs> movie. Like everybody is so happy and doing so well and loving life so much. And the reason is because they've just defeated him. But instead of, you know, throwing him in prison or whatever, his half brother, Don Pedro, decides to say, Let's let bygones be bygones. You can be part of things. It's cool. And yet, you know, he still doesn't want that because he's the bastard son and he's defeated. And that's what this war was all about, is my understanding. So, you know, he's there with all these people he was just fighting with. From a performance standpoint, I feel like a lot of people do not like Keanu Reeves's voice. And that's that's really their issue because when i see this when i see him as don john and he delivers the monologue while after he got the massage yeah okay that is a guy that is not happy that is really laying out to you his discontent here is what my problem is i am done with it and this is a character that is not likable this is not something that people are like i want to be like him you know so it's like you take a guy that that's kind of been like your every man like you know the dude you hang out with and you turn him into a villain and he gives you a performance as a villain and i just don't think people wanted to accept him as a villain and that's very possibly true yeah Yeah. and and again it's just like similarly the way to me that Michael Keaton kind of sticks out in this because he's so different from like your main part of the cast, Mm -hmm. like your Denzel Washington, your, um, Branagh Thompson, Leonard Beckinsale, Briars, um, Brian blessed, like all these people are just having a friggin' blast. Yeah. You know, they're down to party And then you have this guy, Don John, who just wants to make everything crap for everyone. Yeah, well, and it's, I love the fact that people, you know, I know Michael Keaton is doing like a kind of a different thing. It's part of the character, but people are using their own voices. Yes. And and I like that across the board with every single person that's in it. So, I... Yeah, I I was impressed when I saw this, and it made me even more excited because I said to myself, oh, wow, so it is cool if I do this. It isn't like, you know, I have to, I don't know, go to a a finishing school and, I don't know, get get an ascot. I I mean, (laughs) that was the feeling. And it's like, I love that that was taken away, and it was to say Shakespeare is a party. 
Yeah. You know, and it's a party that you go to with full energy. And everyone's invited yes. to the party. Yes. Yeah, I love that too because I mean, here's me at the time watching that. I'm I was like in high school in Mississippi. My accent was so ridiculous that I couldn't even understand myself half the time. And yet I felt like, hey, maybe I could be, you know, I could be in Shakespeare or somebody like me could do Shakespeare. And I mean, the irony is <laughs> the language that English people were speaking mm -hmm. in the 16th, 17th century was probably a lot more like what I did sound like at the time. They probably, because the, the Southern accent has not changed in the same way that the English accent has changed because of isolation. Yeah. So it developed more in isolation because people lived far away from each other and weren't in cities. So it hasn't changed as much. So it's probably more similar to the language of Shakespeare's day, which is why it's ridiculous to think that you have to speak like this very proper received pronunciation to do Shakespeare. You super don't. You can have any kind of accent that you want and do Shakespeare. Well, and it also is evidenced by the box office. This was a very successful production. You know, th there was money that came in from this. And it, you know, that was not something that was common no. with these type of productions. But you have these big name people in it who people yep. recognize. And they're like, well, I'm going to see this movie because Denzel Washington's in it. And, you know, then they say he's doing Shakespeare, and then Shakespeare is exposed to a new audience who may not have seen him before. And this movie looks amazing. They're in a beautiful location. Absolutely. They're, like, in Italy, and it's, like, perfect weather. I mean, oh, it's yeah. just like they're in paradise. Yeah. And, you know, they're wearing, like, all these white, breezy clothes. It's just like they're at a spa. Yeah, yeah. Or something. And they're just going to parties and, like, having this life that every that you want. You're like, I want to be in this. I want to do this, you know? I mean, that's how I feel when I watch this movie. <laughs> yeah, you, you get swept up in it. I, I definitely want to be there in the thick of it, you know? <laughs> you want to be there with the sweat and the wine and the fun, you <laughs> yeah. know? and everybody's dancing and yeah. having a good time. And, that you know, it's like that's what it, all of it's about. And then, you know, Don John is kind of becomes the snake in the Garden of Eden, mm -hmm. you know? And he has to, like, cause this chaos and ruin... By convincing Claudio and Don Pedro that Hero, who Claudio is supposedly in love with, I'm putting quotes around that because Claudio <laughs> is one of these characters that's kind of a stock character in Shakespeare, who's this young lover who is in love with the idea of being in love. So he wants to be this lover who's in love and he wants to like show love and all these courtly ways like reading poetry and you know all these proper kind of things yeah. and it's like he's more involved in the idea of himself as a person in love than he is with actually the person he's in love with which is this character hero who's this young girl um Who's Kate Beckinsale, Kate Beckinsale on a college summer break. Yeah. <laughs> that is a hell of a summer break. Yeah. I, you know, was languishing as a bank teller in the <laughs> drive-thru window during my summers. 
Kate Beckinsale was in this movie, so I think she wins. Yeah, I worked at a uh, mini golf arcade paddle boat place that was directly across the street from a water sewage treatment plant. (laughs) And so when the wind would blow, you just... Ah, delicious smell of stink. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah, it was horrendous. Yeah, so we lost. Kate Beckinsale won. Yeah. Um, But, yeah, so... It's 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 ridiculous that she was on a friggin' break from college. I, I can't even deal. Yeah. But she's very good in this. And she has, like, that really cherubic kind of look to her. Very, like, sweet and innocent. Which is exactly what this character of Claudio would fall in love with. Well, in Claudio, it's just, like you said, it's, it's all about, like, this image and, and how he's presented. Because it's, I love you, hero. I love you, hero. Someone says something... You know, about here, he's like, I'm going to kill Hero. You're not going to destroy my reputation. You're yeah. terrible. It's still about him. Like, it's yeah. always about Claudia. I'm like, oh, boy, it's all about Claudia. And, yeah. like, why does she even want to marry him at the end? You well, know, Well, I mean, that would be my problem. I'd be like, oh, now i got to marry this loser. Yeah, because it's like, what's like, what do we cut to? Like, you know, she, like, drops a piece of cake and he freaks out on her. You <laughs> know what I mean? Like, what's going to happen? <laughs> I love it. You know? Oh, my God. I mean, like, well, I mean, honestly... The, the fact is, Hero doesn't have a lot of options. And, yeah. you know, this is like a young nobleman who wants to marry her. And she's not really that well-rounded of a character, comparatively. I mean, we don't really get to know a lot about actually who Hero is yeah. as a person. She kind of goes along with what she's supposed to be doing, which is kind of like your standard kind of young female character at the time. Um, and Shakespeare undercuts that in a lot of plays. I mean, that's like Bianca and Tame of the Shrew is supposed to be acting like that outwardly, but, you know, inwardly she's doing what she wants and manipulating people to get what she wants. But with Hero, what you see is kind of what you get. She is kind of the sweet, innocent person um, who ends up being horribly abused. Yeah. Um, humiliated publicly. Yeah. And honestly, I don't feel like Don Pedro and Claudio ever make up for it. And I have a hard time forgiving them. And in this particular film, I think they do a very good job of kind of glossing over it in a way that kind of makes it so you can move on. Yep. But when I really stop to think about it and when I read it, I have a really hard time with it. And, and when I rewatch this with it in mind, it's hard for me to forgive them because you have, you know, one minute, they're like sitting here making fun of, you know, um, Hero's father yeah. for coming in and yelling at them. And they're like, oh, I thought the guys with the gray beards were going to beat us up. <laughs> and then Benedict comes in and is like, I'm going to take you down. And they're like, whoa, what's going on? Like, you know, they hear that she's dead and they're just making jokes about things right after. Like They're messed up. They're fully messed up. It's a bad taste in my mouth with both of them. Well, here's the saddest scene in the movie to me. This is a change, but we're talking about Don Pedro. It's with Don Pedro and Beatrice. Yes. Okay. Okay. That is such a good scene anyway in the play, but Emma Thompson and Denzel 
top of their game. That scene is what sticks out to me the most when we watched it, because I was like, wow, I could just watch the love story of these two people. Now, I don't know if I'd say that of every production that I've seen, but I would say that with these two characters played by these two actors, you know, I was there. But I really that there was some energy there between them, like there kind of was something. Well, I believe Denzel. It was because of Denzel Washington because he. OK, so the scene we're talking about is that during this masquerade ball, um, Don Pedro has agreed to win Hero on behalf of Claudio, which he does. Um, Claudio is told first by Don John that Don Pedro is actually wooing for himself, which he believes. And then, of course, like, two minutes later, he believes Don John's BS again. It's like, like dude. what's up, dude? Yeah. Like, fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice, shame on me again, if you're Claudio. <laughs> oh, my God. What a loser. So, anyway... He wins Hero for Claudio, and he ends up, you know, talking to Beatrice, and she says, you know, that she's like, you know, your father got good, got good husbands, you know, if somebody could get one, and, and he say, he's like, well, would you have me? And Denzel Washington is playing this like 100% real, like yeah. he's impressed with her, he thinks she's pretty awesome. Yeah, she is. And he's like hey, if you want to marry, you know, somebody that my father begot, how about me? Yep. And she's like, oh, no, I can't. Because I think she's taken... Emma Thompson is amazing here because she's kind of in shock that mm -hmm. he said this. And then she's also in shock that she so easily said no. Yeah. Um, But she explains to him because she realizes pretty quickly that, oh, gosh, I just hurt this dude's feelings. She's like, you know, I, your grace is too costly to wear every day. You know, it's not him. It's his position. Being the wife of somebody in his position would be too much for her. Um, and that's kind of how she says it. But they they leave it in a, in a good place. Yeah, like, they do. She lets them down easy. But you really do feel the chemistry between those two in that scene. Well, and it just feels like if he had a different position, he, you know, he might have just said something that unlocked a relationship for the two of them. And that could have been the end of the play. It could have been. It could have been. But she says no. So he cracks another plan yep. with the team that they're going to get <laughs> Beatrice and Benedict to fall in love with each other. And I almost had the feeling that in this, um, that this Denzel Washington, Don Pedro, realize that the, that she's really in love with Benedict. So he's like, well, if she won't have me, then I'm going to get her what she wants. That's what I think, too. And I think what I got, I think that he's doing that because he loves her that much. Yeah. And I, I think feel that like... he has that much affection for Beatrice. And I was like, wow. Exactly. Wow. I, mean, I feel like that's what was in Denzel Washington's head, or at least that's what's coming out in his performance. Sure. So he goes about this plan with everybody else, um, and that leads to, I think, my favorite scene in the movie, which is the scene where Claudio, Don Pedro, and the father, um, Hero's father, are all, like, 
hanging around this fountain talking about how Beatrice is in love with Benedict and Benedict is overhearing it. Mm-hmm. And this comes after like Benedict has this whole monologue about like why he doesn't want to get married and why he's going to stay a bachelor and you know why there's no woman that's good enough for him. And then and he does it so funny. It's, it's one of the funniest scenes in any movie ever to me. I just love it. And then these dudes come out and, and you know, just say, hey, I heard Beatrice is in love with Benedict. And immediately he's like, oh, what? And like is all over it. But it's just like, I can't. No woman is good enough for me. And it's like Beatrice likes him. Oh, my God. Oh, I'm going to be in love with her. I'm going to be horribly in love with her. So <laughs> it's just great. And Kenneth Branagh could not be better. And it makes me laugh so much that, like, I'll have to pause the movie to get it out of my system and move on. Because, you know, he goes through this whole thing and then, you know, then they send Beatrice to come get him for dinner. And she hasn't heard overheard anything at this point. So she's still surly and disgusted with him. Yeah, yeah. And he is just, like, sitting in the fountain, like, dipping his hand in it and acting, like, all cute and stuff. And she's, like, got a knife in her hand that she's, like, going to stab him and all this stuff. And he's just, like, oh, I spy some marks of love in her while she's, like, stomping toward him angrily. No marks of love. And then after she leaves, you know, she said something so simple like, I'm sent to bid you come in for dinner. Yeah. And he's like, there's a double meaning in that. It's literally the one time in the play where there is not a double meaning. <laughs> I wrote a whole paper on this in grad school where, if you want to talk about layers, I really confused myself with this. Um, because what my paper was about is that everyone in this society is kind of using words just for their own sake, just for the sake of being witty. And it's getting to the point where words almost have no meaning anymore. People can't speak simply. Everything they say has to be this elaborate thing. But when people actually want to say something direct, that is when they really are communicating. Mm -hmm. Um, it's better if you read it than if I explain it. So we'll put it up on the blog once we have one. <laughs> um, oh. But, you know, my whole reason with that was, again, she comes in, she says something completely direct. I'm sent to bid you to come in to dinner. He's like, oh, there's a double meaning in that. No. Hilarious, but no. And, you know, after this, they barely have time to feel, well, Beatrice goes back and has the same experience where she overhears that he's in love with her. And of course she's psyched and he's psyched. And there's this amazing, ridiculous, like overlaid scene of Emma Thompson, like swinging in the swing. Like she's so overjoyed. Mm -hmm. And Kenneth Branagh's Benedict is like, you know, running around playing in this fountain because he's so thrilled And they're just both like so happy and excited and in love. And it's, it's really, really funny and well done. And you feel like the swelling of happiness, you know, about how, you know, how great it is. 
But you don't really have a whole lot of time to enjoy that because immediately after this is when we have like the shaming of Hero. So it, it isn't enough for Don Pedro and Claudio to be, you know, they, they see Margaret, which is a gentlewoman character. I guess she's like waiting on Hero in the window with one of Don John's henchmen. In the play, it says they're talking to each other at the window. That's a different kind of talking. <laughs> yeah. You know? In this movie, they make it pretty clear that there wasn't a whole lot of talking going on. And it's umbrage. Yes, it's Dolores Umbridge from Harry Potter, which is kind of cognitive dissonance there. Yeah, yeah. But that's what I knew her from first, really, was this, or from Peter's Friends, which is another Kenneth Branagh movie. So I, you know, I've seen her in a lot of things before she horrified me as Umbridge. I didn't never, I, I'd seen her, but I, it's just, I guess, a, a face that just blended in with, with the rest. I just never, she never stood out to me. But after Umbridge, that's such a... That just Character. imprinted on you. Yeah, yeah, I'm like, oh my god. Well, she was perfect. She yeah, couldn't have been better. Yeah. I mean, she looked like it. She sounded like she was disgusting. Excellent. Awful. Yeah, excellent um, performance. But, you know, in this, she's kind of the villain, too, but inadvertently. Um, but she, you know, her situation makes them think that Hero is, you know, screwing around with some guy. Yeah. When she's supposed to be innocent virgin getting married to Claudio. It's not enough for them to try to confront her you know, then, or say something, they have to publicly shame her at the wedding. Yeah. And gross, but that's what they do. Um, and this leads to another one of my favorite scenes, which is totally different than the Benedict monologue scene, where Benedict and Beatrice are talking, and again, we have this expression of truth and meaning that's in very stripped-down words. Mm-hmm. Beatrice and Benedict could talk the paint off a wall, okay? But in this, it's very simple. You know, and when she says, you know, he says, bid me do anything for you. Her response, kill Claudio. Again, there's no double meaning in that. Yeah. She wants what she wants. She wants revenge. She knows that her cousin has been wronged and she's ready to, like, take out the dude who did it. It's a, I'm sorry, it's a shift because, yeah, we, we go from this comedy and it, it kicks us into like a Hamlet. It kicks us into a revenge story. And this Benedict character, you know, this whimsical guy completely changes into a very serious man that I, I have no doubt is going to kill Claudio. He's he going to kill would him. Have done, he did not want to do it, but he would have done yeah. it if he had to do it. Because this is what, you know, I mean, she says that <laughs> they have like a whole very serious conversation here where Benedict tells her, I don't love anything in the world as much as I love you. Mm -hmm. And she says, show it to me some other way than swearing it. Mm -hmm. And he says, bid me do anything for you. She says, kill Claudio. And he says, not for the world. So then she says a very powerful thing, which is that she says that a man can say something and swear it, but she wants somebody who will do something. And she says, if I were a man, I would eat his heart in the marketplace. And it's just, it's an amazing, amazing scene 
Emma Thompson's emotion in this is so real. Yeah. And, like, you just feel, like, the pain of everyone. Because the other thing is, not only do you have Don Pedro and Claudio shaming her, her own father, Hero's own father, immediately believes them and sides with them and starts beating up his own child. That, I, I think, is the lowest thing in the whole show. Yeah. Is that the father is so quick. Yeah. Leonardo is just like on it immediately with those two guys and sides with them and says like, you know, his daughter's dead to him and all this stuff. Yeah. And doesn't even want to hear that she could be innocent. Well, that's, you know, I guess what that that was a statement about the time, which yeah. is men do not listen to women, you know, and it's very funny to me that you have a character like Beatrice that is so deep, that is so rounded, that has so many layers, and in my opinion, is the most intelligent person in the play. I feel that she also is. You know, so that's like, and I would say that if people were on board with her and her beliefs, we would have a better place all around. We probably would. Yeah. Because she has her shit together yeah, and like yeah. nobody else does. You know, and the, the whole thing with that is because she's on the outside a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like she isn't, she's part of the family, but we don't see like her mom and dad or anything. I take it that she's like orphaned and living with Leonardo, who's her uncle and her, uh, her cousin. And she's kind of like, you know, always saying she's not going to get married. She doesn't, you know, want that kind of a traditional life. And that puts her outside of society, which also makes her much smarter about it. I mean, that's something we see over and over in Shakespeare is that the person who has like this outsider perspective is often one of the most intelligent people Mm -hmm. because they aren't a part of it. They're an observer. And, you know, that's why Beatrice, I think, is smart, because she's an observer, but she's also able to participate. She's smart enough and witty enough that she can kind of be almost the star of the show when Benedict is not around. Yeah. You know, um, and that's kind of what it's like at the beginning of the movie. I think Kenneth Branagh deeply understands that, because, like, the way he started the movie is she's, is the M. Thompson, as Beatrice, is reading to everyone out of a book, you know? And they're all, like, in rapt attention listening to her because it's like, this is the person you do want to listen to. She's smart. She's knowledgeable. She's funny. Yeah. She, like, lights up the room. But when it comes down to it, uh, you know, a man of higher position shows up and says anything, that's what people are going to believe. Ugh. It's gross. Yeah, it sucks. But it's true. <laughs> Jeez. So, anyway, we move on from that scene and well it's actually the priest comes up with this idea that they're going to say that hero died and prove that she was innocent and then claudio will you know come back and 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 repent and it'll be fine yeah um but at the same time what's happening is that the plot is actually being discovered by dogberry which is michael keaton's kind of ridiculous pantalone 
yeah. character. He's like very clownish. Mm-hmm. I think the Three Stooges thing is very true. Um, the way he does it, a lot of like this physical kind of almost mean kind of humor. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's like he can't speak. He's full of malapropisms because he's trying to be high class, but he's super not. Yep. He's one of the most greasy characters I've ever seen in a film until I watched Killing Them Softly the other day and saw Ben Mendelsohn. <laughs> I mean, boy, those guys just look like they were dipped in bacon before their <laughs> before the scenes. But but Michael Keaton is trying to uncover this plot, but it's like Dogberry is so dumb <laughs> that he, you know, can't even get to what happened because he's trying so hard to put on this front that he's some high class guy. Well, he's kind of like Clouseau. He's like Inspector Clouseau from Pink Panther. It's just this bumbling detective that we've seen many times. We saw John Candy do it in Who's Harry Crumb. And and we've seen it, you know, in, in other productions as well. Oh my God, this is so brilliant. I've never heard that. But Cluso and Harry Crumb are totally dogberry. Yeah. That's so amazing. It's well, that's like a whole other story. When you go to this this kind of funny detective story with Dogberry, you know, it, it's a real shift from like the family drama that we're having. Yes. I mean, and that you know, that's that comic relief thing again. You know, you have like your clowny bits to kind yep. of you know, balance all the emotional parts. But, yeah, so that's going on, and they're discovering what really happened uh, because they overheard Don John's henchmen talking about it. And eventually we know that it's going to come out, you know, and Hero's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is what happens. I mean, they basically say Hero died, and this is the part that gets me really grossed by Claudio and Don John, because... <laughs> Uh, Leonardo and Antonio come and tell them that Hero died. And they're just like, hey, not my problem. She was a hoe. You know, they're like joking it up, having a good time. And, you know, he's just heard that supposedly the love of his life is dead. And then, you know, it comes out. It was actually Margaret at the window, not Hero. Yep. And suddenly Claudio's all tears and sadness. He deserves it. I mean, to act like the way he acted, Shakespeare does a great job of showing ugly colors in people. Yes. And Claudio is a wonderful example of ugliness. Yeah. In my opinion. Because he will just flip back and forth. Well, you know, he'll be this great guy. He'll be this loving guy. He'll be, you know, a happy guy. And then it's like, oh, no, no, you're going down. You're going down. It's true. He's very changeable. Yeah. I mean, he, he he even kind of almost says this at the beginning that he's just like, oh, you know, before I left, I thought Hero was cute or whatever. But then, like, I just wanted to go to war and, like, fight and be all macho and crap. But now, you know, I'm back here and I'm like, ooh, my thoughts are turning love again. It's like, he just is too much, like, adaptable to whatever situation he's in. Sure. Which, honestly, in love, is a terrible quality in a person. Yeah. Because you don't want to be a changeable, inconstant person in love. You need to be, you know, committed to a relationship. And, of course, he's young and dumb. 
So I guess we're supposed to forgive that. Yeah, there's but, no maturity. There's no maturity in this but character. But I have a problem forgiving it. And then Don Pedro also, I kind of have a problem. Well, he should know better. He should know. But he he's should older. know better. He's We've supposed a... to be smarter. Right. Yeah. That's with Don Pedro. It's more difficult because yes, with Claudio, there's the immaturity, and it doesn't make it okay. And you know, if I was the father, I mean, who was a dick for being so mean to his daughter to begin with, but if I was the father and I was watching this guy that kind of flies off the handle at the drop of a hat. <laughs> you know, go with my daughter. I don't know that I'd feel great about that, you yeah. know? I mean, this is, you know, because they have this wedding the first time, and Claudio just spews all this vitriol. Evil, evil, evil stuff. Evil stuff. And it just, yeah, makes her look horrible in front of everyone. Also, if I'm not mistaken, is physically abusive as well. I don't remember, but in I would this, not I'm be surprised. I'm pretty sure that he kind of like smacks her down Jesus. a little bit. I mean, what like what kind of Joker is this? Like I, I, you know, uh, anyway, anyway. So it, yeah, yeah. yeah anyway, anyway, yeah. Worst, <laughs> but you know, with Don Pedro, that you know, getting back on topic with Don Pedro, we are shown just how intelligent he is. Yeah, and this is a guy that's like a, a master architect. He is the one that decides to make this Beatrice and Benedict thing happen because it would not have happened. Even though I do feel that both of those characters do have feelings for each other, it would never have happened if there wasn't somebody to step in yeah. and make it so they could spill the beans and say, yeah. "Oh, this one likes them." Oh, you know, and then it's like, oh, they like me. Yeah, you know? there has to be like a catalyst yeah. to make that happen. But at the same time, it just shows you that Don Pedro is kind of a meddler. Yeah. Like, he, he, it wasn't enough that Claudio wanted to marry Hero, and he was like, okay, well, why don't you marry her then? It was like, oh, I'm going to get her for you. Like, what? Why? Why don't you just peace out and let people live their lives, Don P? But well, no, he has to be in it, up in it. Well, he's kind of like Zeus. It makes me think of, you know, like Greek mythology. Because you have all these gods that would come to Earth, and Zeus would always have to assume the form of a, a oh, bull God. or something else. Well, to... he would have definitely slammed Hero if it was Zeus. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's like, but that's the kind of, like, that's the kind of, of vibe that I get. Because we're in this beautiful setting, which doesn't even seem real. Right. So that makes me think about mythology. And then you have all of these relationships and all of these uh, arguments, you know, and, and that's really what we have in mythology when you get down to it. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So moving on from there, um, kind of they decide to make Claudio's repentance be that he's going to marry this other girl sight unseen. Yeah. And he decides to, you know, he agrees to do that as a repentance. And, you know, it's obviously hero. So then he's like overjoyed because the woman in the dot is back now. Mm -hmm. And it's like, yeah, 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 whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I like, then, yeah, yeah, yeah. On it. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that's kind of how I feel. But I'm like, sure, sure. Good for you. Whatever. Um, but then like, this is funny again, cause Beatrice and Benedict, now that things are kind of back to the status quo, mm -hmm. they are kind of afraid to go to show their love for each other. And they kind of revert to what they were doing in the beginning, which is just like, well, I, you know, I thought I heard you liked me, but I guess, you know, 
you know, I was going to take you for pity, you know? Yeah, like, you And this kind of stuff. But then it's like, they're full of it. And everybody's like, come on, come on. You're full of it. And then, of course, one of the things that makes me laugh is, you know, (laughs) Benedict then says to Don Pedro, get thee a wife. And I'm like, he almost got yours, dude. Yeah. Like, because he almost, you know, he was trying to go for her. um, But, you know, she said no. Um, but you know, in the comedies by Shakespeare, the status of the status quo is always restored at the end, and you know things uh, usually go on their merry way. Um, there are usually people kind of left out of that, and in this case, Don Pedro is one of those. Yeah, because everybody is happy and coupled, and he's kind of left off. And I don't know if it was intentional, but. Uh, Kenneth Branagh kind of has it that way that everybody kind of runs off and leaves and Don Pedro doesn't come with them. So people are like dancing through the estate, you know. Yeah. Um, but Don Pedro is kind of hanging back alone um, because, you know, he's kind of contributed to these other people's happiness, but he's still uh, uncoupled. Well, and you could say that, again, it's this love for Beatrice. Yeah, but you could also say it's his just punishment right. for participating um, in the shaming of heroes. So maybe he takes on all the punishment himself. Well, Don John also. Yeah, he's left out. I mean, he's he's jailed yeah. for his part um, in convincing them that Hero was, you know, cheating. So, yeah, that's the end of the movie, and it's like again joyous it kind of calls back to the beginning where you have like all these people in white like dancing through you know this beautiful villa in the italian countryside mm-hmm. and then the camera at the very end you know after all the partying the celebration right it just lifts up and just goes up into the sky and it's, and it's awesome. like yeah it's it's just like a fairy tale you know it's just like the ending the the ending that you would see in your mind you know it's like you you go to this place you know you travel in you know you're flying from the sky in your imagination and you see this fantastic world and then at the end after the story is finished you go back home that's right yeah i just i think it's such a great adaptation and i just don't think it could be much better um I like all the decisions. I love the setting. The acting is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. I love the fact that he got a lot of different types of people. Yes. Um, you know, mixed into this. And it's just a wonderfully done movie. And I'm really happy that it exists. Same here. And every time I watch it, it seems to go faster than the last time that I watched I know. it. It's the fastest thing. I mean, and it's funny because people always think, I think that Shakespeare is like long and stodgy and boring, but this has so much energy propelling it forward. It's like what you said when you were reading, you know, Romeo and Juliet for the first time out loud, mm-hmm. that you could just feel it like moving forward. And, and I love that they were able, well, Kenneth Branagh was able to capture that energy. Um, And this is a very quick play. I mean, these people talk, like, so fast. Yeah. Because that's a part of their whole deal. Um, This this play should never be slowed down. That that wouldn't even make sense. Because 
the whole value placed on characters and this is how funny and quick are you um yeah well, and it's also something where Kenneth Branagh did trim the script in places. He said there were some very old gags in there, which he had done the play on stage, and he knew what worked and what didn't. So he was able to, you know, streamline it so that we had all the best bits in there. And that's so smart. Yes, and he also talked about how he wanted to make sure that the action unfolded on screen instead of someone just coming up and saying, hey, did you hear this, to actually play it out. And, you know, the film is is action. That's what we want to see. Yeah. And, um, yeah, just... This movie is so well-crafted. I mean, you have this brilliant script from William Shakespeare, an absolute classic, right? Then you have Kenneth Branagh, this master, you know, because he's done so much work in this field, you know, and he's able to get exactly what he wants. Um, Yeah, I... I I, 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 I don't... I'm speechless with this. I, I don't know... What else to say? Well, I will say one more thing. And it was Emma Thompson in an interview said that when they talk about doing Shakespeare, they picture they're just going to go to some really lousy, kind of rainy (laughs) place. Not this beautiful, you know, Italian countryside. And uh, yeah, they said that the setting really just set the the tone. It just, it, it was this buoyant, happy place. And it made everything pop and it looks like they're having fun it It looks like people are having fun in this and i have to imagine like honestly that's where you have to say kenneth branagh did this exactly right yes he cut the parts of it that he knew didn't work Mm -hmm. he brought it he brought it to the screen by converting those did you hear what happened? Yeah, right. Into an action scene, because yep. you can do that in a movie where you can't do that on stage. Mm-hmm. And he said, let's all go to Italy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like if I personally myself, having studied a ton of Shakespeare, decided to mount a film of Shakespeare myself, these are the decisions I would make. I mean, yeah. it would definitely be set in Hawaii, so we could go to Hawaii. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Like, and that's the great thing about Shakespeare. You can put it anywhere. Put it in Hawaii. Then you can go on vacation. Cut out all the boring stuff that you know isn't going to land. And, you know, make there be a lot of action so that people are engaged and interested. It's smart. It is. Well, you and I have a lot of experience in Shakespeare because we worked with Worcester Shakespeare Company in Worcester, Massachusetts. We worked with them for two seasons. We worked on Taming of the Shrew the first year, and there were two different versions. There was like a, a one that had male and female, and then the other was all male. Yeah, which and was you played Grumio, so you kind of were the same guy in both. Yep, um, and that was actually how we got back into Shakespeare because we had both been away from it at that point for a good, I don't know, eight years or six years or what. Well, I had been writing my thesis for a very long time. Yeah, but I hadn't done anything in it much since like oh two, mm-hmm. and this was like maybe oh nine or ten or something when we got back into it, and. It was so amazing to me that the first play that I got to work on as a dramaturg and stage manager was the first play of Shakespeare I ever read. See, now that, it's just, these things 
are what you remember. For me, when we came in to do Taming of the Shrew, I had come from working a, a, a difficult day job, and at the same time, I was doing film school. And then in the midst of all this, my father passed away. It was horrible. You yeah. know, it was tragic. And I was kind of, I, I felt like out to sea. You know, I had uh, left my day job, and then film school it had ended. And I was looking for something to, you know, kind of get back in the mix. And I was actually uh, taking saxophone lessons. And um, I was talking to someone because we had a concert coming up. And they said, oh, did you know that there's this Shakespeare company in town? Because we were in Worcester. I said, no, I didn't. And so I went and I looked into it and I had missed the auditions. But I was able to contact the director, and he saw me privately, and uh, it was crazy. We just met in this bar, and just, <laughs> like, we talked about, you know, theater for a little bit. Like, I didn't even get out of my high school experience, you know what I mean? Like, you know, I was ready to talk about my theater company. I was ready to talk about all these different roles that I played, what I learned. No, you know what I mean? We just had, like, a beer or two, and I ended up playing Grumio and it brought me back to life you know yeah. I, I was so happy it was a great group of people that we're still in touch with yeah. to this day and that was what 12 13 years we ago made now? excellent friends through that yeah um, and you know and you brought me into it as well because um, you were at that, uh, you were talking to, to Mel during the audition, I'm putting yeah. quotes around that. Great audition. Um, which was just drinking beer and chatting. <laughs> and, which, uh, I mean, honestly though, who wouldn't want to put you in something if you're just having a fun conversation together? You're great. Yeah. Um, and you know, he put you in the role of Grumio and his vision of Grumio and that was like this funny kind of like crazy i don't know whirling dervish of a person he was like in different crazy costumes every time he showed up on stage and you kind of stole the show a little bit and it was pretty amazing and i loved you know you were so great in it but you were talking to him when you were auditioning you're like well my wife you know studied shakespeare and knows yeah. all this. and he's like whoa, whoa and like you know i ended up meeting him and he was just like, zip, and I became like the stage manager and dramaturg, which is a fun and amazing experience. I met lots of great people, got to work on this play, and it was exhausting because I was still working full time. I don't have, yeah. think I had a full, I didn't have a day off for like three months between uh, rehearsals and work, yeah. and then on the weekends, rehearsing, rehearsing, rehearsing in the park and doing all of these things, and it was just an amazing time so much fun and such a fun play to do to like get to work on again and and see it and i just i had a wonderful time with it and it made me feel like i was doing something again that mattered which is really important it was a life-changing experience for us it, it brought us back to ourselves and we worked with them the following year as well uh, they did Comedy of Errors and Hamlet, yeah. and we were part of that. And I acted again, and you were back as a yeah, stage manager. Yeah, stage manager and dramaturging, yep. if that's a word. And then, uh, yeah, and then we ended up moving to L.A. Um, so we 
weren't working with them anymore but i, I it was unfortunate because i would have had a chance to direct the next year yeah you got the call yeah it was but like, it was just oh, like sorry i don't live there anymore <laughs> yeah so my directing is limited to when i was a teaching assistant for um a, an undergrad shakespeare class and got to direct three scenes and i did three wedding scenes from shakespeare plays the first scene that I did was Much Ado Wedding Scene. <laughs> See? Yeah. I, love I directed it. it. I had this really great girl in the class who was an actress. And I was like, this is Beatrice. I've got to get her to do the scene. Because I love the scene where, you know, Beatrice says, Oh, if I were a man, I would eat his heart in the marketplace. I'm like, I need that scene to happen. And I did it. It was a great, great experience. So. Boy, do I love Much Ado. I love Shakespeare in general. It's just so good. And watching it done, like, super well, like Kenneth Branagh, mm -hmm. is such a joy to me. And I could just do it every day. Well, it's the best of the best. He had the best people all around working yeah. on this. I mean, I and, and I love, well, I love a lot of different Shakespeare directors. Trevor Nunn is another one. Trevor Nunn's Twelfth Night is so good. Um, That's an that's an amazing film too it's yeah. really good yeah we're definitely going to talk about that one later too but i wanted us to start with this and i think you did too just because it it somehow managed to be so shakespearean and so mainstream yeah at the same time and it's just it's so it, there's so much great humor and you and i we love each other but we love to play we love to joke yes. and so when i see the beatrice and benedict i love it because i think about us yeah well and i think that it's any great couple kind of picks on each other and has fun and and jokes and stuff like that so yeah. i feel the same way i feel the same way but anyway okay i think we should probably wrap it up i'm with you uh, I hope that you guys have stuck with us over <laughs> over this crazy, wild episode where we talked so much about not the movie. Um, <laughs> but you know, it's it's the it's the risk you run when right? you let us talk about Shakespeare. Um, I mean, I taught I actually taught a Shakespeare for Actors class once we moved to LA. Oh yeah, and uh, that was probably just too much for me to do because i just got to talk about shakespeare all the time and it was the, like the most fun ever it was a wonderful class i learned so much from you <laughs> but it's because i just love it like i just have fun with it and I, i'd wish you know if if anybody wants to hire me to just hang around and talk about shakespeare all the time i'm open to that so yes. let me know she's phenomenal <laughs> she's phenomenal it's literally like the the most thing i care about in the world i could talk about it for days on end any play even the ones i don't like that much i mean all's well that ends well which we mentioned at the beginning right i really don't like that much because i there's so many issues with that play that i have but i wrote a paper on it and I wrote it on that play and my least favorite Jane Austen book, Mansfield Park, and how the two of those are tied together and very similar. And I think actually Oswell influenced Mansfield Park. Huh. And I got to do that paper at a conference in St. Louis with my Jane Austen teacher from undergrad, who was wow. married to my Shakespeare teacher from undergrad. So <laughs> all these things are tied together. It's also great. 
I love my Shakespearean life, and I wish that could just be my entire life. It would be great. Be amazing. So, I relish the the ability to have talked about this on the podcast and just got to enjoy that. So, I hope that my enthusiasm is infectious, and everybody who hears this has loved it and had fun and felt how much I like Shakespeare. Now they want to go like Shakespeare this much too. Yes. So, let Shakespeare, everybody. Shakespeare. Let Shakespeare. Everybody, go get laid. (laughs) (laughs) That's phenomenal. (laughs) And on that note, we're going to say good night, everyone. Thank you so much for being with us. And we'll talk to you again soon. Stay Stay comfy. comfy.